You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. Now, Savage has just released their new shotgun called the Renegade. The Renegade is tough, reliable, and ready for anything. Whether you're busting clays, dropping ducks, or whacking turkeys, Renegade is built to withstand tough use in extreme conditions. For more information about the Renegade shotgun, visit savagearms.com slash renegade welcome to the land and legacy podcast we're your hosts adam keith and matt die this is your number one resource for all things land if you're interested in conservation habitat management hunting strategy and rural real estate this is the podcast for you Hey guys, you're looking for management with meaning, wanting to make a bigger impact on your farm for all wildlife. Check out pureairnatives.com to look into planning a diverse blend on your place that's not only beneficial to the deer, but also quail, turkeys, and the pollinators. Go check them out. All right, guys, so we're going to do a recent a recent uh, consult that I did this week. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a shorter podcast. Um, you know, we're right in the middle of turkey season, but I think a lot of us are starting to move out of that in more of the probably food plotting and various things and thinking about deer once again. And and uh, on this recent pod, or recent consult, I thought it would be a great way to talk about some of the open country management um, where, you know, if you're in Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, parts of Iowa, even Illinois, where... You've got a fragmented type landscape where it's it's relatively more open than it is timber to where you've got big portions of either pasture, big portions of crop, and then you have woods that just kind of follow drainage ditches and creeks and rivers, and they're not really that wide. Um, and so you just have more of an open landscape. We've covered that on past podcasts, but this podcast we're going to really kind of look at um, some of the things that you should consider uh, in how to improve, uh, but also working with the income-producing t- things on the farm. Um, the other thing I think that's really important is if you're out there looking for land, do not overlook the open farms. They might be pasture land or it might be open range land. You're like, doesn't look like it's that great, guys. Those are the farms that you can buy and add and do whatever you want quickly to. So I know we're going to go through a lot of those different techniques, um, how you might manipulate them. But sometimes 
open farms or open vast landscapes are more flexible and manipulable than yeah. closed canopy timber. And then yeah. you can get you can get results very very quickly yeah, you, on them. You could plant American plums and get them to grow a foot to two foot a year if they're an open. You know, if they're out in the open, don't have a lot of competition to where you could have a pretty good plum thicket throughout the farm in two to three years. If you buy a farm that's covered in, that's timber, and you've got a bunch of timber stand improvement to actually get some undergrowth, you may have several more than, you may have more years to do TSI than actually getting plums to grow up and be really beneficial for the deer. So Mm -hmm. um, don't, don't overlook that. Uh, also, you know, if you are interested in, you're looking for a farm, Matt and I are both licensed agents and we can help you find the right farm and help you avoid those costly, not only costly mistakes, but time consuming mistakes where if you buy a farm and find out, Ooh, this doesn't really meet my, my goals and you're going to have to punt and go find another one. We can help you avoid those obstacles. So, um, shoot us an email at info at land Um, Quick story. I guess before I do that, if you haven't listened to the other podcasts, this is the first podcast you're listening to this week. Chad, Chainsaw Chad's also here. He's real talkative today, too. <laughs> it's an early morning and it's late at night. And I'm getting up early again in the morning. So. Boo, he freaking who. <laughs> yeah, it, it must be terrible to, to uh, be hunting every day, Chad. Yeah, you don't know. I mean, you don't know. You haven't been in how many days? I haven't been in many days. That's right. Slept for days. Yeah. So here's a here's a great story. You know, this is just a funny story to me. It's such a small world. I'm sure Matt, when I told you, it was almost like, is he for real right now? There's no way. Um. So I recently consulted this past week in Kansas, and. uh, you know, growing up in college, um, Chad and I and some friends of ours, we hunted Kansas a lot for turkeys. And so in the spring, we would drive all over south, central, southeast Kansas, kicking around in uh, public ground, walk-in areas, which are, are privately owned but are open to public hunting during a certain window of time. And... Um, so there's a lot, there used to be a lot, I'm, I'm sure there probably still is, um, Kansas walk-in hunting areas. Um, and we hunted some all over, but there was this one specific uh, in an area of Kansas that I'd hunted. And, uh, you know, that was 2007, I believe, or 2008. I can't remember the year, but fast long forward. Long time ago. Long time ago. Yeah, 13, 14 years ago. Uh, I guess 12 or 13 years ago, and um, I get a phone call from a client, potential client. He's wanting one of us out there. So my schedule allowed. I'm headed to Kansas, and I get to this farm. You know, I'm looking at the aerial image, and nothing out of the ordinary. It's just, okay, there's a lot of crop. There's a lot of c- cattle pasture, and there's uh, some wooded draws following a little creek. Okay, so I get out there, and come in from the north and I'm we're going around the property and he told me that this used to be walk-in hunting ground and uh you know it's in an area that I had hunted before but I didn't pay any attention and we get to this little 
kind of valley around the creek, and I'm like, man, this I'm almost getting deja vu. This looks very familiar. So I asked him, and he's like, oh, yeah, you could have probably came in from the other from another way. And ended up later on in the day, we went up to where the the uh, county road is on the other on the other side of the property. Wouldn't you know it? I am consulting in 2020 on a property that I hunted back in college that was walk in. Um, just insane to me how small that world was that day, and 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 the fact that here we are being hired to consult on a property that I've already been on pretty crazy story yeah so you know we've been now and man this month we're going to be in minnesota and hopefully florida it's like 28th or 29th state that we've consulted on in four years four consulting seasons not even fully not even a full four years so we've seen some country and you know what it's fun to be able to go back and we'll be hitting on some of the discussions um throughout this podcast of going back not only to to new farms but going out back to farms that you've been working on and seeing the properties really develop and change over time too so that's that's been fun to cover a lot of ground cover a lot of new ground but then see the impact of these consultations the podcasts that they're making actually out on properties across the country that's that's definitely fun absolutely so we're trying to paint the picture of what this part of kansas or a lot of these people can relate to in iowa or crop country basic crop country crop dominated areas of the country and you're seeing limited cover because where there is forest um you know it could be floodplain forest so there's not a lot of undergrowth um or uh, there's food everywhere while the crops are growing and then all of a sudden they get harvested and with modern combines, there's food almost nowhere. Um, so security is limited because uh, pretty much if you walk in the woods, you can see through the woods. Of course, you can see across the crop fields. Um, you can see everywhere. And I think this is where uh, Eastern Red Cedars really shine for people because they provide something that's limited uh, and that's just good cover and um, I think that's why a lot of deer hunters are like when I see cedar patches I see deer or I see deer habitat it's like well I can't argue with that but also understand this isn't how the land's supposed to look and I think that's where that's that's where there's a huge uh, gap in in our understanding of knowing that just because it looks that way doesn't mean it's supposed to be that way. And and if that's what you're seeing, if your woodlots in, in open country, crop country are big timber, not a lot of growth, it needs to change. And uh, so that's what this podcast is about, giving you some ideas on if you're an open country, crop country deer manager, um, things that you can do, need to look for, consider when it comes to trying to improve your property to where um, – you can hold deer and harvest more deer, and not only just deer, but other other wildlife, um, turkeys, quail, pheasants, um, whatever it is. So, um, man, you guys, we've all hunted Kansas several years. You know, if if you say Kansas river bottom or creek bottom, what what comes to your head? 
seen 200, 300 yards of one time. Yeah, gigantic cottonwoods. Yeah, gigantic yep. cottonwoods, hackberries, mulberries, walnut, um, and then just a cool season grass dominated understory. And that's pretty pretty much it. Yep. And scattered bur oaks, if you're depending on where yep. you're at. Yeah. Certain certain areas more bur oaks than anything. Yep. yep, can be for sure. Yep. And so I'm I, I'm sure there's a lot of guys that can picture or think back to their farm and go, "Yep, that's what my farm looks like." Uh, Buckbrush. You don't forget that buckbrush or coralberry, whatever you want to call it, um, mm-hmm. you know, scattered around as well. You know, and and I think some, that's some of them have a little bit of like a a little shrub component. Maybe like a gray or rough leaf dogwood. Yeah. You know, there's some places like in the Flint Hills. That's where you see some of that in there. Yeah. And and there, there was some of that in this place. You know, we're looking at a property that was around 300 acres. Um, I would say 60 to 70% open, whether that be pasture and specifically kind of uh, a more native prairie type pasture. Uh, with some wonderful Cerise Lespides, and I say wonderful very sarcastically, so that is the largest invasive species that they have on this place. A little bit of tall fescue and smooth brome mixed in, but for the most part, probably of that 60 to 70%, I'd say 40% of that is this native pasture that's being grazed. Um, grazed from about April to September, I believe, or October, so... It gets okay. a little more heavily grazed than I than my liking, but it doesn't have cows on it during the majority of the prime rut hunting season. Um, so the grasses do have a little bit of time to recover, so there is a little bit of a cover component there. Um, and then the other part of the farm, the open acres, is crop. Um, and it's just, you know, typical corn-soybean rotation. Um gets harvested sometime in the fall and doesn't receive cover crops every year. Um, has had cover crops in the past, but more years than not, it does not. So it sits barren all through the fall. Sounds like a lot of so, places you guys have been, right? Yes, and a lot of opportunity for improvement and better management of those resources because you, you look at those resources and you, and you kind of say, in Kansas, what more do I really want? And, and it's I think a lot of people get caught up in, oh, I've got river bottom, I got crops, I got some, I'm air quoting, <clears throat> excuse me, air quoting CRP, which a lot of people mistake just native pastures for CRP. Uh-huh. But I've got all these things, but just because you've got them doesn't mean, again, that they're in the right condition that they offer um, top quality, just like trees we talked about on a different podcast. It's like just because you see trees doesn't mean trees are in good shape or they are healthy producing trees. Just because you have all those components that you would like to see in Kansas on a given property doesn't mean that they're maximized at all. Not at all. And, and, you know, even when you see when you see those native pastures, or some people just see it in this day and age, and just like you said, call it CRP. How many times do you see it, and you're like, "Man, it's a good base," but you're missing that you're missing that aspect of it that makes it go, "Ooh, that's going to hold some deer." 
I mean, when mm-hmm. you're looking at acres and acres and acres of grazed natives and they get a little bit too much grazing, it's not, it might as well just be bare ground because uh, it's not real attractive for a bunch of deer to go bed in. Sure. You know, the, the usability for, for quail probably increases and for broods of, of turkey. But beyond that, from a fall standpoint, if you're looking at it, yeah, you're going to be very, very low on the cover and on what it could be by just manipulating the pounds per acre of cattle that you're that you're using to disturb it and feed or or cut down on the grazing window. Yep. And now you can go ahead and, and change that landscape, manage it differently. Yep. So when you're looking at this property specifically, you've got two main crop fields. What would in an ideal world wouldn't you think that one would be soybeans and one would be corn if that's the main crop that we're rotating? In an ideal world, that's it. So you always have some one of the fields has got great summer forage. Am I right? Mm-hmm. All right. But as often comes down, that's not the case. We're typically looking at one crop for both fields. So right, in the years right. of corn, not many deer to there during the summer months because <laughs> there's not much food out in those crop fields. Um, they're going somewhere where there's alfalfa or going somewhere where there's soybeans. Um, and so, you know, how do you, how do you work off that? Try to talk with the farmer, try to get one of those fields, put in something else. Yes, that takes some time, but also understand that you're the landowner. So if they want the acres, they kind of have to bend to your rules or you start that effect to where you've got another farmer in the mix saying, I'll, I want a shot at it. If I, all I have to do is swap and, and have soybeans in one field um, I'll, I'll try that to where if you're in farm country, there is more than one farmer around. And yeah. if there's a tenant farmer who doesn't want to play ball and follow the rules, find a different one. Yep. So, you know, that's one of the first things you can do to, to improve it to where, I mean, we talk so much about diversity, but that could even be diversity within your crop fields to where, Instead of just having all of one crop, you've got it rotated where there are fields of beans and fields of corn. Um, for you guys, you know, I, I was the only one on this consult, so I'm just painting a picture for you guys. But yeah. I would imagine that you've got a pretty good idea. When it comes to what I described and I say, hey, what's your idea for making the biggest improvement to where you know, one of the main goals of this landowner was to hold deer on the place. How does, wh- what do you think he can do that's going to be the quickest way to get deer on the place? Well, I think certainly addressing the cover issue is going to be important, knowing what we described with the, the timber draws and then the lack, or excuse me, I guess the intensive grazing that's happening. He's He's got zero cover across a lot of places so tsi and then allowing some woody shrubs to go back into that native pasture probably be a pretty dang good start yep absolutely and you know i mentioned i forgot to mention another one he's got a little i don't know it's right around five acres that's cr enrolled in crp he's got another little portion that's probably i think he said six acres that he just mm-hmm. planted in crp this winter so it's a very new one 
even cereal yep. rye as a cover crop in that, trying to help that get established. So it's pretty wide open right now. Um, but over time, you're going to get that old field aspect. Not going to be grazed. It's CRP, so it's going to be taller. But once again, it's going to be, you know, make sure it doesn't turn into a monoculture of, of grass, um, which the older CRP field was pretty dominant with grass. So burning, making sure prescribed fires in, in effect so you can keep keep it more productive. But instead of burning the entire CRP acres every three years, try to break it up to where you're burning a third of the fields in more of a checkerboard effect. Um, but, you know, going back to your quickest way to get cover, doing TSI, man, how many times when people say the timber looks great and it's healthy and it's it's got tons of oaks to where they try to make it sound like they probably don't need to do TSI, could you walk in there and find trees that aren't providing them any benefit in the sh- in the in the shape that they're in? Mm-hmm. 100% of the time. I mean, you can almost always find trees that need to be thinned or need to be cut or just I gave this analogy we've talked about on the podcast so many times, but there's good employees and there's bad employees. You look at a business and there's going to be good employees who help you meet your goals, there's going to be bad employees that drag you down. And if you have bad employees, doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be fired and taken completely out of the business. Maybe they're just in the wrong position. Maybe they're in marketing and they should be in accounting. Or maybe they're in some other scenario. Trees are the same way. You've got good employees, bad employees. You've got good trees and you've got bad trees. You've got crop trees and you've got crap trees or weed trees. And those weed trees, bad employees, could be changed. Their role could be changed. Instead of being a 50-foot tall tree that's stressed and not doing very good you could cut that hinge it whatever it is i would probably cut it if it's 50 foot tall i wouldn't want to hinge it Um, but you can cut it put it on the ground where its resources are now within reach of the deer it's providing better cover it's also providing more forage now it's helping you meet your goals it's now become it's changed this role from a bad employee to a good employee and TSI in this river bottom, lots of hackberries, lots of mulberries, um, lots of American elm, um, mm. to where it's just like, oh, man, there's so much food that's way up there in the canopy and not down here where deer can reach it. It's, you know, time, it's, it's time to get it down. The, the people who are in a timber situation like that where it's wide open underneath, they've got a lot of trees overstocked, crowding out mass-producing trees, um, have quite a few trees that are very palatable when they re-sprout. They're the ones who are going to see this just wildly drastic change from wildlife usage because you're going from, like, a, a on a scale from 1 to 10, a 0. You're going from a 0 to, like, a 6 and 7 really, really quickly. But <laughs> yeah. the people who, who actually have, like, their timber more mass and then they continue to cut and continue to cut they may not see that drastic change it's like it's like golf going if you're if your handicap is a six it's harder to get closer to scratch than if you're a 28 you can drop strokes pretty quickly just by focusing on one portion of your game whether it's putting or driving whatever it may be you can drop strokes quick but if you're already pretty decent 
you're not going to see these drastic changes. But if your timber looks like wide, wide open, like a lot of Kansas, you can make changes and manipulate it to wildlife react really fast and in big ways. Absolutely. It's like throwing a treetop out in a pond with no cover. The fish quickly flock to it. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's very similar. And so, you know, this is, if if you're in a landscape like this, this is exactly for you because doing some general TSI or forest stand improvement across all your woods is going to help you hold more deer. But then if you go in and you find key areas and you do really aggressive cutting, you do more hinging, um, then you're going to see even more of a hot spot where you can concentrate more deer around the farm on those areas, Um, specifically looking for older age bucks. And so they're going to find that thicker cover and be focused in more on those areas while the doe groups may be bedding closer to the food in TSI forest where there's a few trees down or scattered trees down. And now you're starting to hold more deer to where when they stand up and they're headed to a food source, they don't have as far to go. So there's a better chance you're going to see those deer during daylight hours. Um, Mm. And I think that's just, man, that's one of the biggest, most overlooked things in open country um, is the management of the timber. Because the timber probably doesn't make up many acres. And so you sit there thinking, how, how big of an impact does it have? But when cover is limited, security is limited, has a huge impact. Um, but wanted to address something that you guys, you, you mentioned when we were talking, you know, painting a picture uh, of what you pictured with Kansas is the cool season grasses. So specifically talking floodplain forests um, and the understories filled with cool season grasses. Yep. It's going to be very hard. We talk a lot about the plant response when you're doing bedding thickets or or cutting in TSI and you get more sunlight. Is It's going to be very hard to get that response. You need to understand your site and know what the response most likely will be. So you don't go in and you cut out a big area, uh, let's just say a half acre to full acre, in a floodplain and expect to see big blue stem seven feet tall or little blue stem popping up everywhere there's probably a good chance it's going to be a, a very dominant, cool season grass effect. Probably even going to get some sedges, some rushes, and even some more wet-footed type plant response in the herbaceous form of pokeweed or wing stem um, to where giant it's just keep, giant white ragweed. You might specify to native cool seasons. Native, yes, yes, yes. yes. The Virginia rye or... or uh, any of the river other oats, river oats. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, all those native cool seasons, um, Canada wild rye, uh, are going to be the ones you'll most likely see. Um, not <laughs> tall fescue or orchard grass or, or uh, smooth brome. Now, if they show up, go spray those, those non-native ones. But in this site, you know, talking with the client he was kind of expecting a little bit different plant response or was thinking you know it could be something else he just needed more sunlight but really that forest floor is a wet site it's flooded every you know it gets flooded once every three years it's probably going to be cool season grasses 
um, dominated. And so it's still great. It's still a native bunch grass, but it's most likely not going to carry a fire very well. And so the conversation I have with him is, you know, this is an area specifically here where a fire might not carry very well. Uh, if it was more the river outside, or you're going to have to probably, if you do try to burn, do more in December, January, because come February, this stuff's already greening up. And, yeah, uh, and so well, kind of another thought with that though, is if it's that bottomland stuff, it didn't burn anyway it, that much. Yeah. It, it wasn't a regular, it didn't have regular occurring fire. So if it doesn't carry a fire, that's not a big concern. No, that's just indicative of the species and the site. It's, yeah. That's okay. That disturbance isn't a hundred percent necessary. When you look at those, those grass, cool season grass species, they stay standing really well throughout yeah. winter time frame. Um, there's really not much of an issue. Unless it's I river see. oats. I've noticed that river oats doesn't them. stay standing nearly as well as the, like Canada wild rye or Virginia wild rye. Um, but it all just depends on what plant communities you have. And then if you mi- but if you mix in the the woody structure, which is what's really limited in these places, specifically treetops and you know if you're doing hinge cuts and things like that, if you mix that in with these cool season grasses, they're going to stand much better with the support yeah. of that woody structure. To where now we're going from something you can see 300 yards with a little bit of chainsaw work to where you can't see 50 yards. And you want to you want to take a gander at going where are the deer bedding? Well, you don't have to look very hard to know ah, this is a great place. And so, inside of that, you know, walking the property, this landowner's already done. He's enrolled in some equip um, cost share options for timber stand improvement, um, and he mixed in some hinge cuts. Wouldn't you know it? You find like one of the very first hinge cuts we went to. Cool season grass. Cool season grass is just laying flat. Because the deer are bedded right next to that hinge gut. What's that tell us? Well, um, you do more of this, you're going to hold more deer. And But then, once again, Matt and Chad, um, the hinge cuts were more of an understory hinge cutting. So mm. we got the woody structure, but we weren't getting the sunlight. Um, so he's going to go back in, do a little bit more aggressive on that thinning, um, and and achieve those goals of getting more sunlight, more plant response. Awesome. No, yeah. that sounds that sounds perfect. I mean, it sounds it sounds like what little bit of sunlight he did get, he got a taste of what could come, which is a great indication of, hey, next next few years down the road, this whole place is going to change. And you're seeing that example of what cover and how deer relate to it. This is just one one hinge cut, yeah, one tree. Wait till we do fifty of them. When when you're in country, your property's managed. And this goes with everything, but specifically when you're managing a farm that's mostly crops or pasture or some other uh, income-producing um, thing, every acre is valuable. And so even the little wooded draws or the odd areas that aren't enough to really catch your attention, those are areas you should really focus in on and saying, I don't hunt there, or before I didn't hunt there, it's just, you know, it's a quarter-acre patch of timber. Well, by golly, make that quarter-acre patch of timber the thickest, rankest, nastiest patch of timber you can make it 
to where you can at least hold some deer there. And it may not be a great place for food plot. It may not be a great place for hunting, but it may be a great place for a bedding thicket. And so there was a couple of those little areas on this farm that it was like he hadn't hunted, he hadn't done much to it. And it's like you walk into it and it's just tons of hackberries and and uh, elms. It's like, well, this is going to be great for woody browse, great summer shaded areas loafing in the next to the river bottom not far from the crop field so it's time to manage every acre absolutely and you think about like the big open country those those odd areas that often get neglected during the rut those are the common areas where bucks will push does up and into and shouldn't certainly be overlooked during that window oh i told him that exact analogy when there was another little spot where a wooded drain kind of popped out from the main creek out in the middle of the of the of the crop field and it's like I'm standing in an area that where if if we manage this correctly there should be a giant buck pushing a doe up in here during the rut because this is kind of out away from everything it's overlooked it's kind of like that camp bird um when you're turkey hunting where there's always that bird next to camp that nobody hunts and they always forget about it's kind of like that area that you forget about, but there's a giant laying in it. Yep. Yeah. Happens so and the next up, you know, when we're talking Kansas, this goes for almost, I mean, I can think of Iowa and Nebraska where you've got odd areas um, or drainage ditches where it's non-native grass, probably smooth brome, and um, it's not really doing anything for you. And so it's time to take it out. And even if you've got crop farm, uh, I, that prize, crop farm or cattle farm to where if you have a non-native that's growing, and I'm going to say if you've got cattle farm and, it's, and you've got fescue pastures, that fescue grass can be praised for your cows if you want to. Um, but if, it's out, if you're finding fescue outside of pastures, it's your worst enemy. It's got to go because it's not doing you anything. So if you're finding little odd areas of cool season grasses in these in 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 some of these farms in crop country, open country, you have to get rid of it if you really want to make it a big improvement on your farm. And that's pretty much Matt. I know you and I have seen a lot of country. And how many places do you go? And it's like, well, it's not a very big area. Yeah, well. That's not a very big area. That's not a very big area. That other spot on the other side of the farm, that's not a very big area. But when you combine it all, it makes up a huge area on your farm that's nothing but cool season non-native grass. It's time to manage it. It is uh, almost almost every property, uh, you know, and, and it, they're so overlooked, I think, because they're open and they don't understand or, or comprehend, let's say, the depth of, of those areas and what they do add up to be. But, um, you know, when you put it on the map and you highlight them or you shade them, it really jumps out at you and says, oh, wow, I underestimated just how much odd areas or, or cool season non-native grasses I had. I really need to address that. Yep. Yep. Uh, another thing, when it comes to the access and just overall cover side of, of the farm, 
especially in, in an area like this where you've got lots of crops and the crops are planted all the way to the timber lines and you know if it's corn or soybeans and you're like I can't hardly I can't even maneuver around my farm during the summer months because the crops go all the way to trees well you spent much time around crops growing next to trees you realize that those little uh drip line edges don't do nearly as well as they do out in the field um crops specifically or food plots even right. There's a lot of great CRP buffer strips uh, that you can enroll in on the perimeter of fields, especially close to riparian areas to where not only are you going to get some diversity on your farm, some better ground for better areas for fawns or turkey poults, turkey nests, but it also will allow you to maneuver through the property better even during the summer months. And those contracts typically require a maintenance, um, and it could be through mowing or burning. You could, instead of looking at it going, okay, every three years I'm going to mow this, keep the woody sprouts at bay. How about you mow a portion of it every year? So split it up into thirds to where every year you mow a third of that buffer strip to now where you have, now you have a great access trail. Um, And so you can still maneuver through the property. At the same time, you're getting some income and you're making a more productive um, area of your farm than being mediocre crop because it's growing under the drip line of the trees. I think I see, honestly, every farm, every farm has that. I, I, I think that it's one of the, it's one of those, if, if we put numbers to it and evaluate what was gained from a harvest standpoint out of those acres or long edges of fields we would quickly quickly realize that they were not worth planting in the first place and that those acres could be used for wildlife benefit and save you lots of time and money from seed to herbicide to diesel fuel harvesting all of it yeah save you a lot of money not every single ounce or square foot of open ground has to have a food plot variety or a crop on it so be productive we're looking at cover aspect how to improve it on this property tsi through the entire woodlot also bedding thicket hot spots edge feathering as well as buffer crp buffer strips Mm -hmm. uh, as well as adding crp acres if possible another way is planting shrubs um, specifically in those cattle pastures increasing your wooded draws um, connecting the scattered trees and the drains uh, with some more shrubs where you get that more woody component uh, and also rotating the cattle. Uh, don't overgraze. Just little yeah. tweaks like that can really increase the the productiveness of the farm. Um, but when we're talking improving the food, well, we know through the timber stand improvement and everything, we're improving the woody browse, so we're getting more winter food. But also, overall, one of the quickest ways is cover cropping. And you don't have to cover crop every field or every acre. Um, and But work with your, with your farmer. Try to look at some of the cost share options for cover cropping. There's a lot of great options out there. Uh, but then also, if it's up to you, just take a backpack spreader and go and, or not backpack, but your whirlwind spreader over the shoulder and go and broadcast an acre in front of your tree stands to where at least once they harvest the crops, you do have greens somewhere on the farm um, in those in those tillable acres. But another one, man, Matt, how, 
how does alfalfa rank in your head and, and when you're looking at uh, income producing acres um, whether it be pasture whether it be hay ground whether it be crop ground um, if if there's a way to get alfalfa on a piece of ground we're trying to find it because you know here's a, a thing that's producing a ton of bugs for birds but also tons of forage for the deer and depending on your climate can almost be year-round food um and so it is alfalfa it it, it does not nearly get and, and not every region has let's say a market or the ability to grow alfalfa well but if it does if you're in that region you really ought to be considering it if you were on a recreational property and you're wanting to have income producing acres still. Yeah. It is one of those forages that it, it is so broad and the, the species that do, I won't say rely on it, but that do get attracted to it from a forage standpoint or, or bugs that get attracted, like you talked about, you know, even down to quail down to uh, turkeys, turkey poults, the, uh, I think it's about 6,500, it's about 7,000 pounds of food can be produced per acre. And they're getting cut, you know, several times a year. And so it's just a continual re-sprouting, re-sprouting, re-sprouting tender vegetation. And it's just really, really strong from pulling game. We see a lot of, a lot of wildlife kind of associate themselves in and around larger i don't think we have to be larger fields i guess but just alfalfa fields because they have that much food potential absolutely yep so he's going to be talking trying to just see if there's an option to get alfalfa put in on this farm um man just would be in it'd be crazy good but um last thing this farm owned by a non-resident he lives he doesn't live on the farm and mm-hmm. so he's got, when it comes to that, food plotting really isn't a great option. Um, right. But if you do have food plots and you want food plots um, and you're the man to get it done, you really, you're trying to find what what's the biggest bang for your buck. And so that's where we really rely on perennial, The well, we just mentioned alfalfa. That's what would be yep. great to have another farmer pay you to plant alfalfa. And it serves yeah. as a really good food plot. But... If you're looking at it from a little bitty half-acre area and going, what should I plant? Perennial clovers, chicory mix, uh, even some alfalfa thrown in would be phenomenal. Low maintenance, highly productive, maybe spray once once a year, mow once or twice a summer, and be done with it. Um, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of, let's just call them weedy clover fields or weedy perennial patches. And deer still hammer them like they do not have to look super, super pretty. You come, you know, come fall or late summer when weeds are mature and they dry out. You've got probably a really good solid base of clover underneath of them, unless it's super weedy and totally out competing. But even if you can't maintain them to the degree that you would like during hunting season, they're probably still really attracting deer some of my some of my best public land hunts Mm -hmm. have been on some of those really weedy like patchy clover fields because most people overlooked them because they were looking for the tv show yeah 
beautiful green food plot. And they walk by that field and go hunt other places like big crop fields. And I could sit on that and see deer just pile into them because no one hunted them. Who, who was that, Matt? Did you let somebody else on the podcast? Or... <laughs> he's just he's just really holding his tongue and waiting for yeah. the key moment just to just kill people with Folks, great information. If you didn't get that, you should write that down because if he spoke up, if he if he gathered the courage <laughs> enough to speak up, it's really important to him. So, oh man. No, that, and that pretty well wraps it up. You know, we were trying to do a quick little podcast here, um, and I think that's hopefully a good reminder for you guys in, in open country and trying to find out, uh, ways and ideas to get more cover, but overall just improve your hunting and wildlife holding capacity uh, on your farm. Um, Matt, you got anything you want to add before we sign I off just, here? I really got to reinforce the fact of open ground has – the most energy reaching let's say the soil in which you can grow things that will be more relatable to deer to turkeys to quail that much faster that much more energy gets transferred to plants creates cover and food and so i strongly suggest people not to overlook open acres when buying or managing a farm if you have open acres it absolutely better be devoted to wildlife cover or food to whatever degree um, or tillable if you need that income. So it's a multi-use property, but do not let those things sit um, not devoted to wildlife because they have an extremely important role in your property. There you go. Well, guys, um, thanks for joining us once again. We'll be back next week with, I'm sure, more habitat-focused content and some more turkey hunts wrapping up Missouri season this week. So, guys, be safe if you're still chasing turkeys. Um, Good luck with your spring food plots, and we'll talk to you next week. See ya.